Welcome to Pantisocracy, and this is your host, Miss Panty Bliss. I do love an audience that has been primed to pretend they're excited. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, well, welcome to Pantisocracy. It's our sort of parlor of conversations because we're annoying like that. And today I have three very interesting and different women um, to, to meet. And I could honestly talk to all of three of you for the whole hour. So um, that's going to be the slightly annoying thing today. First of all, I'm going to introduce you to Eleanor here, the wonderful Eleanor McAvoy, who, well, is mostly known as a singer, really, but she has written hundreds and hundreds of songs. And um, and there's one song in particular that's about 25 years old now, which I suspect is paying for some of her bread and a little butter still, uh, A Woman's Heart. Um, so I definitely want to talk to you about that, Eleanor. <laughs> then I also have a, well, a punk icon, um, Hazel O'Connor, who I, you know, reading more about you, I discovered we've lots in common, including the fact that we both spent some time in Japan, but that's only one of you from Coventry to Morocco, to uh, Beirut before eventually deciding to choose Wicklow. And uh, finally, I have a historian, Sonia Tiernan here. She's a Dubliner, but she now lives in Liverpool. And she's a woman who's sort of fascinated by hidden histories, in particular, women's hidden histories. And um, I want to talk to her particularly about Eva Gore Booth. And I have a stupid drag name, Panty Bliss. It's ridiculous. And there's a, you know, I didn't choose it. There's a story to that. But, I, but I, it means, because I don't like it, I'm always thinking, what, what, if I could choose another name, what would it be? I would definitely choose Gore Booth. Um, but first, because uh, my name is in the title of the show, I get to start off with what we call the panty monologues. You know, one of the things about me is that people sometimes get, they get a little flustered when they first meet me because they're worried that they're going to offend me by using the wrong pronoun or something. But they don't, don't worry about that with me because uh, personally, I don't really care. I like to say that I'm post-gender, by which I mean you can just pick the gender you want to be on the internet and they will post you the bits and bobs that you need. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of reasons why I started doing drag, but just one of them is something I sort of people misunderstand, and that is that I am not impersonating a woman. Now, a lot of drag queens, especially those who specialize in celebrity impersonation, they often refer to themselves as female impersonators. And that's totally fine, I have no problem with that, but I never do that because that is not what I'm about. You know, I know that nobody is going to mistake me for a real woman, and I have no interest in trying to persuade anyone otherwise. I am not actually trying to present woman to you. I am trying to present, in a way, something that is neither male nor female something else or something other. And sometimes I think there can be a lot of power in being else or other. The other thing is that sometimes people who don't really understand drag or where it all came from, they sometimes accuse it of being misogynistic. They say it's an offensive parody of women. But I am not parodying women. What I am doing is using the tools of femininity. You see, long ago, our culture decided, and I say our culture, it was not all, but our culture decided that women would be the peacocks. And then we gave women what I call the tools of peacockery, you know, powder and paint and jewelry and, you know, big hair and heels to lengthen their legs and corsets to enhance their curves and bras to manage their unruly breasts. <laughs> and, you know, these things can be really fun, but they're also work. You know, they're time-consuming, they're usually uncomfortable, and they're sometimes downright painful, you know? I mean, look at me. I'm so glamorous, I'm practically disabled. <laughs> <laughs> but our culture didn't just give these tools to women, it then insisted that they use them, whether they want to or not. And if a woman decides, well, actually, no, I don't want to have to go to all that trouble, I just like to be comfortable, well, then our culture sort of looks at her with suspicion. She's either lazy or slovenly or obstinate or lesbian. <laughs> and probably all four. <laughs> and at the very same time, our culture said to men, you're not allowed to use any of these tools. Your men, we insist, must be grey and dull and visually uninteresting. And, and if a man decides, well, actually, it seems like fun sometimes, I, I'd like to use some of those tools, and then our culture looks at him with suspicion. You know, at the very least, he's a flaming homosexual. <laughs> but of course, entertainers, well, you know, we want to be visually entertaining, and so even heterosexual male entertainers often take on elements of femininity in order to make themselves more visually interesting. So, you know, Prince would 
cover himself in sequins, and you know, David Bowie has his eyeliner, and you know, rap stars drape themselves in fur and jewelry. But if it were just about the superficial worlds of fashion and entertainment, well, it'd be of little consequence. But it's not really, is it? I mean, men are expected to be grey and stoic and expressionless in every aspect of their lives. You know, big gestures are considered camp and unbecoming of a man. You know, big emotions are considered weak and feminine. You know, unless at the side of a football pitch. You know, for God's sake, American men are afraid to cross their legs in public for fear that somebody might think them girlish. And to me. It all just seems so unfair, because I don't think that's fair on women or men. You know, if a woman doesn't want to have to shave her legs and rip out her pubic hair and hobble herself in shoes that were not designed for walking, well, she shouldn't bloody have to. <laughs> and if a man doesn't want to have to worry about using his hands too much or crossing his legs in public, well, he shouldn't bloody have to either. And you know, if. On occasion, he'd like to look fabulous in fishnets and two wigs for extra volume. Well, why in Cher's name not? You know, in a way, all I'm trying to do is to bring a little equilibrium into the world. And you know, while I'm standing here in front of you, you know, in bone-crushing high heels, you know, making you eat it, I like to think that somewhere, you know, out there, there's a lesbian in Tesco's wearing Birkenstocks and feeling comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Um, hi, Hazel. I want to come to you first, actually, because um, I'm just slightly too young to have been at the right age for the sort of height of the punk revolution. But you know, my older brothers and sisters would have been. But to me, one of the things about the punk thing that was exciting to me was that it was turning everything on its head, and it was a sort of a two fingers up to everything. And to me, I've always considered drag to be inherently punk because it is also it's a two fingers up to how you're. You know, expected to dress and behave, and you know, express your gender and all of those things. It is sort of confronting and discombobulating, as I like to say. And, and so, even though punk wasn't my era exactly, I've always felt that affinity about it. And looking from the outside, it always seemed like punk was a good place to be a woman who felt different. And you were a great example of that. So, am I right in my reading? You're correct. Yeah. <laughs> no. Here's the thing: before punk and the new wave happened, to be a girl in music, you usually had to be pretty, wearing all the trappings that you were talking about. You know, corseted and beautiful, and makeup, or and and fit this kind of very narrow. Place、yep. as a woman, and I never fitted it anyway. And then punk happened, and I thought, "Ha!、Huh, it doesn't matter it, for a minute, just for a minute in time.、Mm. It didn't matter what you look like. You weren't judged by your sexuality or how、yeah. sexy you were, or if you, you know, sort of bounced up and down on the record executive's lap or whatever.、Mm. None of that. It was just what you were and what your energy was about. And I, I love. Energy. I think energy is what it's all about, anyway.、Yeah. Whatever the trappings. So it was a brilliant time for the likes of me,、yeah. because I never thought I was anything special or pretty or any of those things that girls do worry about.、Um, and therefore, it was a lucky time.、Mm. Well, it's funny because I know you're great friends with Toya Wilcox, and just the idea that you and Toya are best friends just really tickles me. <laughs> but,、um, but, but I think she's another great example because you know she had her you know speech impediment thing, yeah. And and I can't think of another musical genre up to that point where they would have allowed her to become a star. Yeah, and also Toya was when she started out, she was quite a little dumpling.、Mm. You know, she wasn't a skinny girl. It was only when she started to move towards the higher echelon of stardom that I, I thought. Oh, she's been working out.、Uh, you know, all these things. Suddenly, you do get dragged down by. I have to say, you know, like what you're looking like, and、um, are you glamorous enough? And and when I go over on the boat, all the time, I'm always looking at those awful magazines, and I hate myself. I think, <laughs> why are you doing this to yourself? And you know, I'm looking at Cheryl and、uh, all these girls that I don't know who the hell they are, but they're from you know some t- TV show. And you know the worry of if they're fat or if they're thin or if they're you know been having some face work and and I just think whew, it is such 
a burden to mm. be stuck there. So I think what Toya did years back was brilliant because she did decide she was going to lose weight and she just looked gorgeous when she did that. And she used all this paint and beautiful things and she still does. And she's, uh, you know, she's very opposite, I suppose, in a way to me because I'm not very good at keeping up with all that. And now, Eleanor, you have a 15-year-old daughter. I do, yeah. And are you hyper aware of those pressures that teenagers are under? Yeah, I am in a way that I wasn't before I had a teenage daughter, Mm. you know, because you see the amount of pressure on them to conform and look a certain way. And, you know, thankfully, she's got a lot of passions. I think if you have passions, you exempt yourself from some of that because you're busy with your passion. And therefore, there's a certain amount of time you can't spend on Instagram looking at people looking a certain way. Yeah. Now, I mentioned, of course, A Woman's Heart, one of the all-time great Irish songs. So, Thank you. But you wrote that 25 years ago. I did, yeah. And now you have a 15-year-old daughter, you know, 25 mm. years later. Would you write that same song now? Because in a way, mm. it, was, it was a different era to be an Irish woman in. When I was in college, like, contraception was illegal, you know, when I was in college. It wasn't just hard to come by or difficult to get. It was illegal. It was against the law. Like my mother had to give up her job when she got married. That was the law. She wasn't allowed to keep her job. Ireland felt very grey. Growing up in Cabra on the north side of Dublin felt very grey at the time. Now, maybe it was me. I'm sure some of it was me. But it didn't no, no, feel no. like a great <laughs> It was uh, grey. It was definitely yeah. grey. There wasn't a lot of joy. There wasn't a lot of colour for me back then. And now I'm a whole different person. And, I, you know, yeah. uh, life is just kind of... It's a di- Dublin's a different place to me now. I yeah. love it, you know. I mean, I wouldn't want you to, to write a different version of that song because I think yeah. it's perfect. But it is interesting to me that in the, in the space of that 25 years, you know, Ireland is, is a different place but it's still not a perfect place to be a woman in. You're absolutely right. It's not. But God, we've come so far. And when I do despair about the challenges that women face nowadays, still, I have to think, hang on a sec, Eleanor, we've come a long way. You know, when I look back to back then and said, OK, we've come this distance, we still have a hell of a long wait. You know, I got asked by an interviewer recently, who helps you write the songs? You know, I'm in my 50s. This is my like 14th album. You know, I have a degree in music. You know, who helps me write the songs? Can you imagine a 50-year-old man being asked that this far into his career? You know, so you do get that. You know, you go into a shop to buy a set of guitar strings and they say, are you looking to make jewellery? No, I'm not. I'm going on tour for six weeks, you know. <laughs> you know, there's not a 19-year-old. <laughs> Like, can you imagine a 19-year-old young fella been asked that? He wouldn't be asked that, you know. Mm. So, so it is, you know, it's, it's, we've a long way to go, but God, we've come so far. Well, but, but it isn't even thing you're looking at your career in a sense. I think if you were a man, you would be much more celebrated. You write all your own songs, you produce your own albums, they've won awards for your production. I just feel like if you were a man, you, you would be on a pedestal of a different size. I think if you were my PR person, I'd be on a pedestal <laughs> of a different size. <laughs> well, you know, if the drag ever falls over. Um, um, but, but, but do you know what I mean? I mean, do you feel that yourself? I don't really think about my place in the world much, you know. I think about the next project, the project I'm doing. That gets me out of bed in the morning and that, you know, oh, I should put an F sharp minor in that song. You know, that middle eight section, this is what this needs. That's kind of what floats my boat and enthuses me. And I can't really speak as to what it might have been if I was born a man. I probably wouldn't have written a song called Only a Woman's Heart if I was born a man. But then who knows? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And now, Sonia, um, one of your great interests is Eva Gore Booth. And she's a good example of how women's stories, you know, have been sort of ignored or seen as less or whatever in a way, which I think, you know, is mirrored here with, uh, you know, Eleanor's career. Um, Why is that the thing that grabbed you? Um, it strikes you when you're listening to Eleanor because if you ask a man that question, well, men are much better at promoting themselves and yes, saying, you're yeah. right, I should be better placed, you know, yeah. whereas women tend not to. Well, it's funny Eleanor said, I don't think about my place in the world. Yeah, I think men do think men about their do, place in the yeah. world. But because they're taught to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think an awful lot of that is because of role models. And it's really important. History to me is actually political. What's written about, who's remembered, how it's written about. You know, Winston Churchill supposedly said that history is written by the victors, being generally white, male, heterosexuals, you know, and therefore that's the history that we had. So it looks like men invented the world, basically. They wrote all the great books, they 
all the great music, painted all the wonderful pictures. And women were just overlooked because they didn't have any power, they didn't have any say. So I think for somebody like Eva Gore Booth, then you go through an entire school system and even university. And I'd never heard of this woman, Eva Gore Booth. I'd heard of her sister, Countess Markovich. But you suddenly hear that there's this woman who had written and published like 19 volumes of poetry and plays, was a, an immense political activist. And nobody in she Ireland knew about her. She was a big wasn't she? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And nobody knew about her. And she was also very out and open about her lesbian relationship, which is possibly another reason why nobody knew about her. So I, I think women like that are really important, especially from an Irish perspective when we're missing a lot of our history anyway. But then we're considerably missing women in history. And I think it's really important to give young girls those role models to say, yeah, I can grow up and I can do this and I can be whoever I want to be. So that's why it became so important to me, I think, to recover women like her. Yeah. Um, And and, and class comes into it too. Absolutely. um, Because, you know, well, Eva Gorbuz wasn't working class, but you're from Dunleary and from a solid sort of working class background and then you you go into academia and and you're talking to some other people in, in during this series especially ones from working class backgrounds so they went into academia they felt often that somehow there was a question mark over them you know that people would assume they were on a scholarship you know that kind of I, I wouldn't kind of consider myself I couldn't call myself working class now you know I mean I sit at a desk and I you know <laughs> so you just I don't get my hands dirty on that but you know it's like so I'm very privileged from that point of view mm. and my parents did very well for themselves so they were very focused on the fact that they didn't have the opportunities of you know formal education to go on to university yeah. and they put a lot of focus on myself and my brother and I think they probably put even more focus on me as a girl which was quite interesting because they maintained that it was even more important for a girl to get education. But when I finished my PhD, I got a a postdoctoral fellowship in Trinity and you do see the class difference there. You know, no matter where you've come from, the fact that your parents haven't been to university would just be bizarre to them. So it's an unusual one. There's definitely a lot of classism, I think. And, you know, why history? Because you didn't really set out to be a historian? No, it? absolutely not. I went to it like later on. I mean, I was, I actually had a cafe in Black Rock at the time and I was, you know, enjoying life, thought this was great, but I was a bit bored. So I thought well, I'd go back to Rock. college. <laughs> yeah, yeah. True, actually, yeah, true. So I know, actually, I didn't think of that. I should have just moved into town. But um, <laughs> the text will be coming in now from yeah, Black Rock. I know. So I went back to college at night time and it just absolutely, totally invigorated me back into this idea of I hadn't studied history, you know, since school. And I, I just became a little bit obsessed with it, actually. So I sold up the cafe and went back and did a PhD. And, and, and you ended up in um, Liverpool, um, l- looking across the IRC yeah. back at Ireland. And um, now you, Hazel, have come the other way. I mean, you started in Coventry, took a very long roundabout route, Morocco, Beirut, all, all sorts, and Japan, which we had that little thing in common. But then ended up in Wicklow. That's because my dad is from Galway, from Cladda. He left because there was no money, no work. And I went around the world and ended up in Los Angeles, got skin cancer, and I'd always decided if I ever got horrible disease that frightened me, I wanted to be somewhere, if I was going to die, that was beautiful, not die under a big poo in the sky, which is what Los Angeles is like. (laughs) (laughs) That's what the smog looks like, you know, and I just thought... I'm not going to tell anybody this because if I tell somebody, they're going to make my energy feel depleted. You know, when you say to somebody, I've got this illness and they go, oh, I'm sorry. And you can immediately feel your own strength being taken from you. So um, Louis Walsh used to be my agent in those old days. And he he said, Louis Walsh gets into every story. I know he does. (laughs) Bless him. And and he said, oh, I'll help you. Come, come, come and live in Ireland. So... um, I moved here, lock, stock and barrel. And, and did, but had you spent much time in Ireland before you decided to move here? Uh, I used to come in the summer times to see my cousins and hang out all yeah. through my childhood. And um, even though my mum and dad split up, I'd still come over to see the family. And when, you know, when they had the first Slane Castle Festival. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was when Thin Lizzy was playing and you 2 and I was on and a whole bunch of people 
but got the skin cancer, went, whoa, I don't want to die here. And um, I thought, yeah, I want to go and live in Ireland because at least in Ireland, everything's green. It rains a lot. No trouble with the sunshine. <laughs> and well, you uh, moved to Ireland and then you didn't bloody well die. No, exactly. <laughs> no, well, here's the worst thing. We sold everything up. And then the doctor in the hospital, she phoned me after we'd moved here two months, three months later and said, we made a mistake. You didn't, I didn't. You know how life can do that to you. You think, oh my God, I'm going to, you know, it's called the kick up the bum. <laughs> and it was what we needed, my ex-husband and I needed to get out of that place. It's not, it's a toxic place, I think, Los Angeles. Yeah. Now, now Eleanor, you're from Cabra. Yeah. But I live now in South East Rexford, yeah, most of the time. And, and your family or your, your background, they are like a t- very traditional family or? God, my parents were psychotically religious. That's about the best way I can describe it. I mean, really psychotically religious. Um, Dad was into the Latin mass, all of this kind of stuff, you know. So it was, yeah, it wasn't great. It was very strict. Um, and of course... I think if you if you get that as your upbringing, you, you can go off the wall. Yeah. You can react in a number of ways, and I certainly went off the wall. Um, at and what I, age did you go off the wall? 14, 15, maybe, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so that was, that was the upbringing. And, of course, I'm sure some of it was me. I'm sure that I wasn't the easiest and I was in a funny headspace. I but always no felt, teenager is the easiest, you yeah, know? Yeah, I mean, I, all, I felt like a bit of a freak all my life growing up, you know? And I don't know, I was the odd one. I was overweight, I had glasses, I had braces. You know, I'd carried a violin case, you know, through Cabra from, you know, to Stanhope Street School and or No Hope Street School, as they used to call it. It just, and I'm, I'm sure people were happy there and I'm sure they had a good time, but it just, I was always the weird one. And then I got into do music in Trinity, which I really, really wanted to do. All of a sudden I met all these other freaks. And they loved music as much as I did. And the day I stepped in there, it was like the beginning of my life. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Yeah. You know, pe- people are different. But, you know, when I was growing up, I, I definitely felt a bit weird and awkward and different. But looking back on those things now, I'm really thrilled about that. Because I think most of the things about me that I actually like come from that awkwardness I felt when I was younger. Yeah, I do know what you mean. And I'd love to have your outlook on life. Like you're, a, you're such an original thinker, even your monologue today. It's unusual. It's just a completely different perspective. And I don't think I have that, actually. I People always say, oh, as a songwriter, you have such a good imagination. And I feel, no, I haven't. I don't have any imagination at all. I just describe stuff exactly the way it is. You know, I just um, yeah, but see something and I just that, write about that it. That is really, to me, that you would think that about yourself. You have it's true. hundreds and hundreds of songs which are, you know... But I'm just describing things the way they are, exactly the way I see oh, them. Oh, you think you are, but you're describing them poetically. And, well, you know, if you were just describing things, nobody would be, you know, buying your <laughs> and listening to your, your, your songs because they could just go out and read a phone book or something. I mean... <laughs> I think the great aspect of it, you just have a determination to kind of get yourself out of a situation and how healing music can be in that. And it meant I just kind of zoned into music and harmonies and I think it's such a healing thing and I think it's such a force for change. And, you know, when they're talking about cuts in the arts and, you know, I often think, my God, the arts are what keep us alive and what, you know, and I know I cited it before, but the noble call that you did like in the the, the theatre, which changed the conversation in this country, it really fundamentally changed the way everybody thought and you know, you wonder what the marriage referendum had had the result it would have had. That came out of theatre. Well, I get too much credit for these things because I wasn't, you know, it wasn't a grand plan. But, I but, know but isn't that, that about, but, it's about but it the power came of, out art, of really. it came, Yeah, it came out of theatre. It came out of somebody deciding, let's have a noble call after the risen people. You know, the, the power of art and the power of theatre and the power of music, it, I just think in, in society it's undervalued. You know, I'd love to see a situation where you go to the doctor and say, I'm not well or I'm depressed. And he'd say, OK, listen to the Brandon Burkett <laughs> twice a day. Listen to this Leonard Cohen album and, you know, and, you know, and then come back and see me in two weeks time rather than giving you a couple of pills. Now, I know I'm being superficial and depression is a very real thing and I'm not dissing it in any way. But music is such a powerful force in our world today and it's a mood altering substance. 
and I don't think we realise it enough, you know. Mm. Um, well, now, Eleanor, you're going to do a song for us. I am. Um, and in a way, it touches on your sort of religious background, I guess, in a way. Yeah, well, I, I was in the parish of Christ the King. I don't know if that means anything to anybody here. And, you know, we had a lot of great religious people in the community. No doubt about that. Great priests, great nuns who did great things. We won really bad one, though. And he caused a lot of carnage in people's lives. And people say, well, that was one, just one bad egg. But you know what? The whole hierarchy of the church covering up for this guy. And that is the bit that still gets me, you know, the hierarchy still haven't apologised. They still haven't acknowledged like what they did and what happened. And so I guess it's, it's about that whole thing. OK, and it's called? Deliver Me. Will I go sing it? Yes, okay. please. seems like an appropriate time to do a little housekeeping here and just point out you have a new album out. Do you want to tell us a little about that? I do indeed. Um, I'm a huge fan of the poet Thomas Moore from the late 1700s, early 1800s. And he wrote Moore's Irish Melodies. And everybody, you know, they're songs that people think are really naff and they're kind of from the parlour and they're the kind of songs that, you know, you think about your drunk aunt in a pub. I don't mean your drunk aunt in a pub, but one's drunk aunt in a pub <laughs> singing, you know. And um, and it's called the Thomas More Project. So, that, I mean, that is what I love about your albums. They're like really contained projects. You, you're like a sort of a, an Irish Bjork almost. Or like that. <laughs> yeah, they're not commercially the smartest thing to do. Everybody, I said, I'm just doing an album of Thomas More songs, and everybody said, 
why? <laughs> why? Why would you do that? Like, why would you do that? You know. Um, briefly, Hazel, because um, we were just talking about the religious stuff. You did dabble in, or you are Hare Krishna? Uh, yeah, yeah. So many years ago, uh, I'd been asked to do some gig in London, and uh, I went and sang there, and I saw Polystyrene who was a punk icon and she was wearing a sari and whatnot and I I knew she was in and out of mental asylums for quite a few years. She had some problems and when I saw her, I said, oh, you know, it's great to see you and you're looking so well and she kind of spoke gook to me really and I thought, oh, and she really freaked me out and I actually started to feel quite sick because I was raped by a Hare Krishna priest when I was 16 living in Amsterdam and so I'd always hated them and uh, I thought this is really weird that these things should come into your life because I think that's what happens in life and uh, one of them was trying to give me a book and I said I don't want your book you know one of you raped me when I was 16 and and he was such a nice fellow and he said oh I'm so sorry and he said you know can I give you a bag of our Gita and it's the Hindu scripture. And I said, would you mind if I took the book away and read it? And then we could have dinner next week and talk about it. And I did. I took the book away. And I, was, I really liked the scripture. I liked what it was saying. It talked about the soul and that it's a never dying thing. And the only thing that dies is this body, this old car. And you change it for a new car. And I sort of liked that. But anyway, it changed my life to such an extent that I've it stayed with me forever. Mm. So, Sonia, you, are you from a straight-up, you know, regular Dublin Catholic family? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. The usual kind of thing, went to a convent school. and But I've always tried to get away from that kind of Catholicism. But since I've left the country, I've only ended up working in religious universities. So it's actually really <laughs> bizarre, So, which is where I work now as well. But, yeah, my, my parents would be, they would be very religious, but they've always felt they will take their own kind of way of uh, considering the religion themselves. You know, I mean, well, I came out as gay to them. They didn't have an issue with it. It wasn't going to be a, a problem to them. That's fine. And that's the way. And if some priests have a problem with you being gay, that's their fault, for example, you know. So they don't have that kind of very strict adherence to well, it. Well, you know, because, of course, you know, a la carte Catholic... Mm. You know, that yeah. great phrase yeah. is kind of often thrown around as an insult, you yeah. know, as if, oh, you, you don't have the strength yeah. to be a proper one, you know. Yeah. But I actually think it's a wonderful idea uh, yeah, to be now yeah. to take, you know. What yeah, you, the, I do the, too. The and I mean, and they, the they find a lot of comfort in their religion, I think, especially now. Like I'm home for the weekend, I'm staying with them. They're up this morning and off to mass. And But they find my father has been very ill. And, and like the, the, the kind of belief that they have in, in their faith, you can actually see is a wonderful thing for them. I don't have it. I officially defected from the church because of issues that Eleanor was talking about. They found that a little problematic, actually. They found that more problematic than being gay. It was like, you don't need to defect. But um, yeah, so they're, they have um, a good take on it. I, I sort of touched on earlier about my sort of interest in outsiders and mm. all that, because in a way, I think history is made by outsiders. I mean, it's, it might be the insiders who are, end up being celebrated and having their you know, face on the cover of the history book or whatever. Mm. But often great seismic changes are instigated by uh, outsiders. Yeah, absolutely. There, there definitely is. And, and it's probably uh, it's probably people coming at things from a very different aspect, I suppose. So, yeah, I mean, and it, like if you go back to even people like Eva Gorbuth as well, of course, you'll have to keep going back to. I mean, she was an outsider in the community that she worked in because, as you were saying, she was like Anglo-Irish aristocracy. And she becomes an outsider in a very different way because she ends up moving to England and lives in a very working class area of Manchester. And you can only imagine what like the working class women thought of her at the time this aristocratic woman with this you know genteel accent mm. and she worked down a coal mine at one stage to prove that women actually could still work at coal mines because it was all about protecting women from work you know that y you shouldn't ban women from working in particular trades because then you just throw them into unemployment so she was an outsider I think from that point of view because yeah, she was firmly pacifist wasn't firmly, she firmly yeah which is interesting that her sister you yeah. know 
firmly but a supporter of the Irish Republican movement. So she's very complex, you know, and she gave talks all around England defending what they were rising at the time. So even though she's a pacifist, while she was in England and saying you shouldn't be in the world war, she was also saying, well, obviously the Irish had to rise up and fight against you because you've oppressed them for hundreds of years, you know. And again, as an outsider, because she was part of the ruling class. Yeah. You know, so... And like, you know... I was, you know, maybe vaguely aware of the name Eva Gore Booth, but but obviously I knew lots about Candice Markovitz, we, you know, school and whatever. So she was the one who was celebrated, and I really only first sort of came across really when I, you know, read some of her Sapphic poetry, her lesbian poetry, and I was like, oh my god, Candice Markovitz's sister was a full-on lesbian and you know deeply in love with her, you know, the love of her life and 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 living quite openly in that way, and that was like fascinating to me and uh, you know that people look back and read things differently and all that and of course now in a way Casement's sexuality is you know celebrated really and which I think is great because I was always annoyed with the people trying to say no those diaries are fake because I think any gay man reading those diaries knows they're real (laughs) which isn't that long ago either I mean if you remember Bertie Ahern like you know actually commissioned and spent taxpayers money hiring somebody to prove that this was actually fake writing and then he was very disappointed when he was proved wrong you know you remember that you're thinking what on earth? And actually, Eva launched a huge campaign for his reprieve at the time as well. So the two of them were connected. So it's kind of, which is always really nice because it's kind of like this, you know, the lesbian and gay community, even though it wasn't actually there, was yeah. still, they were all minding each other where yeah, they could, yeah. you know. Well, of course, you know, you know, I want to look back and say that, you know, it's, it was her innate lesbianism that then sort of made her see the world in a slightly different way. And that's yeah. why she, the rich woman became a trade unionist and was mm. very, you know, whatever. You know, mm. I want to, you know, you yeah. know, give credit, all the credit to that about her. Am, yeah. I just, am I just wishful thinking? No, I think you're right. I mean, I think, I think there has to be an element of that because like you were saying yourself, you, you see the world differently because you are an outsider in that respect. So, you know, you can imagine growing up in somewhere, or I, I've thought about growing up in somewhere like Lizardell House in this mm-hmm. great big mansion, you know, and, but then to see what was expected of your life, to marry into the same background to, I mean, that must have been particularly, you know, frightening. For, for somebody who knows that they're a lesbian, you know, at that stage. Um, and actually, aristocratic women were nearly under more control than working class women were because they were really expected to do certain things. So I think that would have changed her whole outlook. It must have changed her whole outlook. I mean, one of the things that I think about a lot, especially here in Ireland the last you know, few years, or at the last Gay Pride, there was um, the Taoiseach, the leader of the country, being super gay and whatever. And, and it's, it's so boringly ordinary now in a, in a way in, in many ways and although I think it is wonderful of course and it's great and I'm glad that you know teenagers are growing up in this new island all, there is a part of me that misses the, the outsiderness of it you know when I first discovered all of that stuff it seemed so exciting to me and and, and 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 there was no pressure on me to get married there was no pressure on me to go and get a decent job and settle down with a nurse and a golden labrador you know because none of those things were available to me they were never going to be available to me but that was incredibly freeing and, you know when we were kind of invisible you know and being invisible is super freeing and so to me that was exciting and 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 now i sometimes i you know i worry a little bit now i'm being very careful here. I, I think it's wonderful i think all the changes are wonderful i fought myself for them you know you're not but special there's a small part of me yes after all you're not there's special. a small part of me that thinks you know are we going to lose something here by just being some you know mainstream and ordinary and boring you know in a way i kind of feel like you know the 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 gay's trick has been revealed you know and we are just (laughs) as boring and ordinary as everybody else you know what i mean and and so there's a little part of me you know that you know late at night you know you know (laughs) i feel even bad for verbalizing that but you know what i mean or you know these kind of little or lesbian nights that were you know in the back bars of of these things and in some ways you kind of miss those things yeah. the birth thinking, place of you know. Thomas More by the way that's where Thomas More was yeah. born in J.J. Smith's he was sorry, born in J.J. Smith's he was born in J.J. Smith's that was his house yeah his father was a grocer sorry yeah, yeah. I don't think it was tiny little yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, 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 but that's interesting to me, though, so too, looking at the sort of the gay rights, you know, movement, there's so much has been achieved, but there are still so many gaps, like you were saying earlier. What are the gaps that concern you, Eleanor? Like, I saw you last at the Traveller Pride Awards. 
yeah, that's a big issue as well, mm. the whole travellers thing, you know. I mean, it was great to be, you know, anytime you're, you're part of discussions about travellers, it's in a negative context, you know. And it was great to be there in a positive context, seeing these amazing, one 15-year-old kid, second in the Young Scientist exhibition, you know, you talk to this kid and you think, this guy could take on the world. I mean, an extraordinary, smart, eloquent, intelligent kid. You know, it was lovely. So that that's an area where we have a lot of work to do in Ireland. Um, now, Hazel, mm-hmm. so you first came to real prominence with, with the movie Breaking Glass. And, but you were kind of screwed over there, weren't you? Yeah, um, big time. I was just, uh, I just signed a stupid contract at the very beginning of my career for one pound. And the people... One pound? One pound, yeah. So the people that had that contract on me had me under contract when I managed eventually to get the lead of that film. And as a working class person, I know that, you know, when your chance comes, you grab it. And I really wanted that film part. I really also wanted to write all the songs, but I'd only written three up until then. And uh, so I was a bit shocked when it did all come my way. So, yes, I got the film. I got to write the songs for it. And suddenly, because there was something to do it for, I was able to do it. I'm not I'm not. Probably like Eleanor, who's like prolific and can write all the time. I can't. If there's nothing to write for, I'm lazy and want to do other things like garden, walk the dogs. Um, The the reason I sort of brought up you getting screwed over in that period of your life is because I think the music industry is notorious for, you know, young people, naive, just happy to be in the industry, getting screwed over. It's harder for a woman, I, I think, in the industry generally, because Eleanor... You are an IMRO, the Irish Music Rights Organisation. How did that come about? Well, it's only quite recent, actually. That's, that's, I, I've been on the board of IMRO, the Irish Music Rights Organisation, so they're the crowd that kind of collect the royalties and pay the songwriters. So they're non-profit. And, you know, when you hear music being played in a pub or a restaurant or you hear music being played on the radio, somebody has to collect the royalties and then pay them out to the people. I won't lie, when I'm in the bar and... A fellow walks in with a clipboard and he okay. says he's in wrong. Yeah. Oh, yeah. no. I'm <laughs> sure you do. Yeah. But you're up to date on your license. I, are you, did you check that before you <laughs> bet you checked that before you go. <laughs> so, uh, basically, I'm the, the, the big thing, of course, at the moment is the online thing. You know, we're being completely ripped off. Our incomes have been absolutely decimated because all the money that was going to the musicians and the songwriters is now going to the tech companies. Mm. So the money's still being made, it's just that they're getting all the money now that should go to the writers. So that's really what we're fighting about. Um, So would you consider yourself a trade unionist? (sighs) No, I'm a songwriter. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I do think Jean-Michel Jarre put it really well in Lisbon a couple of weeks ago, the French composer. He said, you know, we're baking a, a loaf of bread and we go around lovingly sourcing all the best ingredients we can. We put it all together. We put it in the oven. The loaf of bread comes out and the tech firms come and take it, serve it to the people at the table next to us. We watch. And if there's any crumbs left on the floor, we can have the crumbs. Mm. That kind of sums it up, what's happening mm. at the moment. I see. I think Eva Gorbus would have been yeah. <laughs> joining yeah. the barricades. For you. I think she would have yeah. been, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, Hazel, tell us about your current project the one that i've just <laughs> finished was a, a film that i'm doing a small part in which is called um baghdad in my shadow um but i was really pleased to be part of the project because things i didn't even know about iraq for example iraq was a, a big socialist country before the Ba'ath party got in and saddam hussein got in and um they were a very happy socialist country <laughs> and then you know somebody, I don't know who, messed around with their politics and helped the Ba'ath Party get into power. So a lot of these ex-communists from Iraq were kicked out or were tortured. And the guy that's written the script and is the director is one of those people, one of the diasporic uh, Iraqis. So when I went to do the filming bit, he wanted a singer as well as an actress to do this part. So I said, well, what, what music, have, what have I got to do singing-wise? And he said, well, I don't know. And I said, well, I, I've got a song that I've just 
just written with one of my work partners is an Irish harp player called Cormac Debarra. And the song got used in the film, but... Um, th- it's interesting, that we have a historian here. And it's interesting what you said about the, the history of, of Iraq, because our actual view of history tends to be very short, doesn't it? And so most people think of Iraq as, oh, it's just always been a mess. But of course, it's not that long ago when it wasn't a mess. Yeah. I mean, you could see that even here if you start, if you think about like young people here who are growing up actually think of places like Northern Ireland as thankfully is, is you know, the peace process is working really well, but they don't know much about the history of, you know, it, it actually depends on on the time period that you're in. And, yeah, and, yeah, and maybe you, it's as I'm getting older, but it that sort of view of history seems to be getting shorter. Um, and often I think it's it's only movies and stuff that expand people's view. Which is history. a good thing. Um, if, if you don't have the long view... You know, you don't see these things coming and or, you know, and, and big change sometimes creeps up on you or sometimes it's super dramatic. OK, well, I think let's have the song now. The song is called Wakey, Wakey. Wakey, um, Wakey, everyone. Like wake up and smell the coffee, everyone. Yeah. And you're being accompanied and um, by Roger Taylor. Now, before everyone thinks the drummer <laughs> queen is here. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, Roger, hi. Thank you for being with us. Um, so, yes, please. <laughs> of the rain oh, It's pouring It's just another hurricane Call Katrina or Jane I call it a warning Science experts in the pay of greedy corporations say Fossil fuels are not to blame No need to change Wakey, wakey, everyone Been a-sleeping too long Sold your birthright for a very, very cheap song It's just another hurricane Bury your head in some computer game Driving your car, you can be a star Twittering on about who you are on your Facebook page Oh, you're all the rage Welcome to this brave new world It's yours for the taking Thieves in charge, reality stars Presidents in waiting Viruses and pesticides Trails of tears revisited over and over again. Viruses and pesticides, GM foods, fracking away in my insides. Wakey, wakey, everyone. Been asleep too long. Sold your birthright for a very, very cheap song It's just another hurricane Bury your head in some computer game Driving your car, you can be a star Twittering on about who you are on your Facebook page We all the rage All was good for business mm, Terror too Selling harm to both sides Building your walls And we are fine
on your Facebook page. Thank you, Roger. Thank you, Hazel. <clears throat> and, and Asanya, you moved to the UK and you're a historian and you're looking across the Irish Sea and Brexit is happening. And what's a histor an Irish historian's long view on what's happening now? Mm -hmm. It's Besides the <laughs> fact that it's just frightening, actually, um, I would certainly be very concerned about it. Um, I think, because as an Irish person, we have referendums, which we have to for everything, because we have that one written piece of, of legislation, the constitution, that has to be voted on. There isn't the same. They don't have one written constitution in England or across Britain. So people aren't as aware, actually, of what a referendum means. And you can see the difference in the last election as well, that people are not happy, actually, that... People used it as a protest vote. Yeah. I don't know what Hazel would think of that as a, an English person, but I do think that they used it as a protest vote and then didn't uh, realise the implications, yeah. actually, of what was going to happen. Well, I mean, I would argue that, you know, bad history was responsible for a lot of it because the people who were arguing for it mm. were making this huge change very casually um, without a long view. Yeah. But they were, and then they were also arguing for it based on arguments of a totally invented sort of idea of, of Britain's past yeah. and, you know, how perfect it was and how, we'll, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, and so I just kind of feel like, ah, we need some historians around here. And it's the first time yeah, I ever yeah. screamed that. But <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you're going to keep saying it now all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Hazel, yeah. but you are... You're British. Um, well, no, I'm not anymore, actually. Oh, no, right. <laughs> I took a, me Irish passport. I'm an Irish passport oh, holder. Yeah, I, okay. I've, yeah, long time ago. <laughs> and no, to be honest, it's a, it's a terrible thing to say, but I, I would much rather travel Irish than English any day because it has such a bad rap in the world, you know, next to, you know, if you're on a plane and you, you've got an American or an English passport, it's like, hoo hoo, and something bad happens, you know, I don't want to be waving a British passport, I want to be waving my Irish passport, happy days. Uh, I do feel really sad about Brexit because, I, like you, you just said about the North, it's going to cause us a problem, all of us. And the fact that the uh, Northern Irish didn't want to leave the EU is another problem because it's being foisted on them. And I think it's terrible and it's going to be a really, really horrible time, actually. Mm. Uh, we have a gig coming up? Uh, uh, yes, um, Cormac DeBar and I are playing in Port Leash at the Arts Theatre there on the 12th of August, I think, and then going up to Moyers, to Leo's in Donegal to do this Songwriter's Night on the 18th. Alrighty. Well, that is it for this episode of Pantasocracy. So a big thank you to Eleanor McAvoy. <laughs> the singing craze unionist. And Sonia Tiernan. <laughs> and of course, Hazel O'Connor and Rogers. Thank you so much. Um, uh, you can catch all the episodes of Pantasocracy on the RT Radio 1 website. Um, Pantasocracy is an Athena Media production. Uh, thank you so much to Helen Shaw. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.